You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose podcast. For more sermons and content, visit sojournmontrose.org. Okay, before we jump uh, into 1 Corinthians 11, let me set just a little bit of the stage. We are um, moving into a different portion now of 1 Corinthians. We spent several weeks, six of them I believe, talking about this idea or this uh, this theme that should be common within the church, which is that the church, in the church, we as individuals have to know, need to know, that what we do as individuals affects the greater whole. And so although we have many liberties that have been secured for us by Christ, we should use them in such a way that they serve one another. Right? And so God through Paul at one time has simultaneously elevated and lifted us up, saying that we are free and gloriously free in Christ. And at the same time, he has humbled us in saying that that freedom is to be subjected to the love of our neighbor, our Christian neighbor, our non-Christian neighbor. And that that expresses itself most clearly in the church when we serve one another, when we sacrifice for one another. And now Paul is going to move into a section where he talks about essentially what that looks like in the context of the church gathered together for a worship gathering. So chapters 11 through 14, Paul is essentially setting the boundaries, talking about what it should look like when God's people get together. And so for the next seven weeks, We'll be in this miniature sermon series called Ecclesia, where we're talking about what the corporate gathering of the church should look like. And I know that this is a weird place to start. But again, I think the Lord has something good for us. And so, to start, let's do it this way. We're going to do this a little bit differently uh, than maybe we have in other portions of Scripture uh, for a number of reasons. We're going to walk through this text together very slowly in an ideal world, right? In an ideal world, the Scripture would be more clear, right? We wouldn't have to dive so deeply into the text, into the context, but the reality is that with this particular portion, there's a lot of nuance that we can't afford to miss. So again, I'm going to walk through slowly, methodically, and then we'll draw what I believe are appropriate, biblical, glorious conclusions from these few verses. So let's start in verse 2. It says this, Now I praise you, brethren, brothers and sisters, that you remember me in all things and keep the traditions just as I delivered them to you. So in verse 2, what we come to find out is that Paul is commending, he's encouraging the Corinthian church for what? For maintaining the traditions of the church in the corporate gathering. He's saying, your Sundays look great. I commend you, I encourage you not only for keeping them, but I encourage you to continue keeping these traditions as they were delivered to you from me. So Paul is saying, look, I'm an apostle, I've shown you what it looks like to worship in the context of the corporate gathering, continue in that way as you have been so far. Now this is important, okay, we can't skip over verse 2 because it gives us an incredible context clue. And it's a clue into the fact that Paul is not simply talking about a husband and wife relationship. He's talking about men and women 
in the context, again, of a corporate gathering. Now, here's why that's important. If you've been at Sojourn for any amount of time, you know that we normally use the English Standard Version. That's a translation of the Bible. It's one that we find is typically very faithful, very accurate. And yet today, this morning, we read on the screen from the New King James Version. Now, the reason for that is that the New King James Version translates the Greek words man and woman, as opposed to the ESV that translates it husband and wife. And again, we do that because we believe that in this instance, the context seems appropriate for the Greek to be translated to every man, every woman in the church in Corinth, not just the married couples. And if you have an ESV, just so you know, you'll see a little footnote, and on the bottom it says an appropriate translation would also be man or woman. And this, some of this is a hint as to how complex this portion of text is, right? Like, you have to take an interpretive stance in order to even translate it, right? You have to believe that it's saying a particular thing even before you get to the translation work. But again, I think our context even just in verse 2, gives us a clue as to how we should translate those Greek words. And here, we believe they should be translated men and women. Now, with that understanding, what are those traditions, right? Paul says, good job keeping the traditions that I myself delivered to you. What are the traditions that he's talking about? Well, let's keep reading in verse 3, and this is what it says. But I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ, the head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Every man praying or prophesying, having his head covered, dishonors his head. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. For that is one and the same as if her head were shaved. For if a woman is not covered, let her also be shorn. But if it is shameful for a woman to be shorn or shaved, let her be covered. Now, before we get bogged down in the details, let's look at this just from the 30,000 foot view, okay? Because again, Paul's commending them for traditions that they're keeping. So let's answer that question first. What are those traditions? Well, we can see just from these few verses that those traditions are twofold. The first one is this. One tradition is that both men and women pray and prophesy in the context of the gathered church. And then the second is this, that one should be able to tell the difference between them, male and female. That the gathering is gendered, that we hear from both genders, and that the distinction between the two is important. So the tradition that Paul commends in verse 1 is male and female participation in the corporate gathering. And it's important enough to Paul that it be demonstrably, unquestionably visible that there is male and female participation. And that's why the verse goes on to say that it's dishonorable for a man to cover his head while he is praying or prophesying. 
And that on the other hand, for the woman, it is dishonorable if her head is not covered while she is praying or prophesying. Now, let me explain why, why that would be the case. Okay? There's a lot that's happening here. There's a lot that's happening here culturally that probably offends our Western 21st century sensibilities. In our culture, a head covering on a female, right, is typically taken, and again, when I say our culture, I'm talking about United States 2018. This is not true of the whole world, but it is true of where we are. In our culture, a head covering on a female is a sign, or is taken to be a sign, of female subjugation, of oppression. But the reality is that in the culture that Paul is writing to, in Corinth, in the early 50s AD, head coverings were used to classify women according to their socioeconomic rank and their marital status. Here's what that means. It means that head coverings signaled to the public a woman's status, a woman's dignity, a woman's worth, a woman's value. And so for a woman to walk around in public with her head covered signified honor. It signified status, dignity, modesty, security. In fact, it was so significant, it was such a significant honor that there were few women who were even permitted by law to wear a head covering. Historical research indicates that slave women, poor women, single women, adulteresses, and prostitutes were prohibited by law from wearing a head covering. And so their uncovered head was a disgrace to them culturally in that time. Why? Well, in the Greco-Roman world, a woman's hair was considered to be the chief element of her beauty. And so for a woman to cover her hair was an act, again, of honor and modesty. And so as we step further into this passage, there's one key thing that we need to remember, right? That we can't get tripped up on. I know that for us, this seems oppressive, but for the people that are reading this, most women who are reading this letter, as Paul writes it, would like to wear a head covering. Would have considered that desirable in their culture as a symbol of honor and status, not as a symbol of subjugation. So, when we begin to understand what Paul is saying in that light, Paul's instruction becomes truly incredible, right? There's, there's a lot of us that read this and we went, incredible. Can't believe we're going to read this, right? Un- incredible, unbelievable, right? Unbelievable. But if we read it in this light, if we read it in the way that I believe Paul, with with all good conscience, is saying here, if we read it this way, then his words become truly unbelievable. Why? Paul wants all women to cover their heads while praying and prophesying even 
those who are not allowed to cover their heads according to Roman law and cultural norms. Right? Corinth, this city where what you wear matters, right? Where you, you were what you wore, Paul says all women should cover their heads. And what that means, brothers and sisters, is that the complete opposite of what we would think reading this is actually what Paul is saying. Right? It's completely the opposite. He's saying that every woman in the context of the gathered church should be ascribed respect, honor, dignity, protection, irrespective of their class, even if they were denied those things by the culture that surrounds them. Do you understand? Paul's instructions to the church in Corinth at this time would have made the slave girl an honorary matriarch in Christ. The prostitute who all throughout her day Right? Anytime she's not in the context of the gathered church, by Roman law, is required not to wear a head covering and thus wear her shame publicly, that woman in the context of the church should feel honored, safe, dignified, respected, loved, empowered. That's what Paul's saying here. And so, what Paul wants to happen what Paul would like for be, for, to be the case in this moment is that at any given point in time, any member of this locally gathered church could look out over the public gathering of God's people and not be able to tell a distinction between the powerful and the weak, the rich and the poor woman, the dignified woman or the disgraced woman, because all in Christ are wealthy, all in Christ are dignified, all in Christ are powerful. And so again, I think when we read this in light of the context in which it's written, we come to realize that Paul is not actually being chauvinistic, he's being protective, he's elevating, he's dignifying, not denigrating. And so Paul goes on to say this in verses 7 through 9. For a man indeed ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man is not from woman, but woman from man, nor was man created for the woman, but woman for the man. Again, right? <laughs> Throughout this text, we're going, well, wait a minute, right? I read one more verse, and it's like, uh, he's, back, he's back to chauvinism. And listen, if we could be tempted to read it this way, right? Those, those verses that we just read, we could be tempted to read this way. We could be tempted to read it, man, he's the image of God. But woman, she's just the, the glory, the, the image of, of man. And many throughout history have read it this way. They have. That's why you came in here probably with some assumptions that it should be read that way. But again, if we're reading this, not only in the context of chapter 11, but even within the context of the entire letter of 1 Corinthians that we've read so far and everything that we will come to read after this, 
we should know that that's not, in fact, what Paul is saying. What is Paul actually saying? The point that Paul is trying to make here is that woman is man glorified. The point that he's trying to make is that woman is man 2.0. To bring it to our times, man is the first generation iPhone and woman is the iPhone X. That's what he's saying. He's saying that women are more glorious than men. Women and men are equal in terms of value, right? We've talked about that multiple times. It wasn't that long ago that we were in Galatians, right, where we read that it doesn't matter if we're Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, but that all of us are one in Christ, worthy of equal value and dignity, right? So let's not, right, I'm not trying to flip that on its head. Women and men are equal in terms of value, but they are not equal in terms of glory. Paul is saying the woman is more glorious. Women are more glorious than men. Does anybody really want to disagree with that? I mean, seriously. Listen, the Bible does not teach, contrary to popular belief, the Bible does not teach that man is a dollar and women are a quarter. The Bible teaches that man is a dollar and woman is a dollar, but that man is more like a dollar bill, common, unremarkable, and that woman is a silver dollar, unique, precious, more glorious than the man. Equal in value, not equal in glory. In fact, this is a consistent theme throughout the Bible. So this is not something that I'm just sort of trying to pull a rabbit out of the hat so that we can all leave here without wanting to stab me in the chest. Okay? It's not. It's a theme in the Bible consistently where the most glorious things come last in the Bible. Right? The Garden of Eden, it was glorious, but its glory will be surpassed by the new heavens and the new earth, the new Jerusalem, that city that will inhabit upon Christ's return. It will pale in comparison. In the same way, the stars, the seas, and the plants, and the animals, they were glorious, but the crown of creation, the crown of creation was man. Man was the crown of creation, but guess what? Woman was the crown of that crown. So Paul is not saying that women depend upon men for glory. He's saying the opposite. He's saying that men should look to women as their glory. Women are humanity's better half. Man was created prior to women, but that doesn't mean that men are more valuable than women. If being created first makes you more valuable, then plants are more valuable than humans. And I don't know, maybe some vegans would agree with that. So to reiterate this point, 
Let's just use the language that we found in verse 3, right? Christ proceeds from God, and he brings glory to God. Man proceeds from Christ and brings glory to Christ. Woman proceeds from man and brings more glory to man. And so, the instruction that Paul has now becomes a little more clear, right? His instruction in particular for men here, which is what? That we shouldn't let our hair grow long. Why? Well, he's saying, listen, men, don't seek to glorify your own heads because men are called to be the head, not the hair. It's reserved for women to be the glorious ones. So that means, brothers, all the time that you spent primping this morning before coming here was sinful. I'm kidding. I'm just kidding. But really, like that's what Paul is saying. He's saying, let women be what they were always intended to be, the more glorious, the fairer sex, if you will. Saying, let them be that. Don't compete with that. Because that is how God has intended it. That is the tradition, if you will. It's reserved for women to be the glorious ones. And so Paul is saying, in all of this, he's saying that in corporate worship, we should be able to distinguish between men and women. It's as simple as that. Now, there might be different cultural ways that that's expressed, right? It's 2018. Like, we dress and present ourselves differently, but we should be able to distinguish, is what Paul says. Which is why he goes on to say this in verse 11. He says, Nevertheless, neither is man independent of woman, nor woman independent of man in the Lord. For as woman came from man, even so man also comes through woman, but all things are from God. And so what is Paul saying in all of this? He's just spent 10 verses telling us that we're different and that we're meaningfully different, that men and women are meaningfully different, and that there are ways in which men glorify God and there are ways in which women glorify God, both of them in the act of praying and prophesying, but by presenting themselves appropriately before the congregation. All right, that's, that's what he's just said. Saying, you're different, you're different, you're different. And then... He wants to make sure that we don't fall off the cliff on the other side. He says, but there's this beautiful interdependence. There's this beautiful interdependent dance that is described here where men and women in their respective ways enhance one another's glory. And so although we are different, we are also one. In the same ways that we are distinct, we also need one another, right? Although woman proceeded from man, now man proceeds from Woman, right? In the birthing process. And so what Paul is saying is, listen, the church isn't less glorious because men and women are different. It's more glorious. In particularly, as we in our differences serve and love one another appropriately. And that's why he wants those differences to be seen. And why he goes on in verse 13 to say this, Judge among yourselves, is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? And so here Paul is saying, listen, like, this is not a law. He's not saying it's 2018 and, you know, we're not going to be passing out head coverings as you leave. He's saying, judge for yourselves. 
right? He's saying it would seem to me that a culturally appropriate way of, of considering these things, the dignity and worth of every woman in the congregation, the difference between men and women in the congregation, and their active participation in the congregation would be well served if the woman would cover her head. Judge for yourselves, is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him? But if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given to her for a covering. And so again, Paul says that women should have long hair, men should not. But again, let's not get bogged down in a conversation about how short is too short for women and how long is too long for men, right? There's some guys in here that are going, oh gosh, you know. That is beside the point. It's beside the point here, right? Let's remember the context. Paul is talking about hair as a means of glorification. And Paul is talking about gender distinctions within corporate worship. So the principle here, the principle underneath this custom that Paul is encouraging is that men should not seek to glorify themselves or to beautify themselves as women do, especially not on Sunday morning. Why? Because when men seek to glorify themselves, they prevent women from being what God created them to be, glorifiers among us. Let me give you an example. Take a wedding ceremony. I've done quite a few of them. Um, and you know what? There's, there's never much hoopla when the groom enters. Right? You're just you're kind of sitting, you're listening to the prelude music, you know, you're chatting with friends, you know, Instagram, make sure you get the wedding hashtag right and all right, all that stuff. And then all of a sudden you look up and you're like, oh, when did he get there? And his only job, right, for the rest of the ceremony is to stand there and make sure that he doesn't pass out. That is the glory of man. Right? Just stand there. But when the bride enters the room, what happens? Oh man, I tell you what, it's magical every time. Because listen, even, like, even when the grandparents and the family are being seated, which by the way, you're rude if you do this, okay? I'm just telling you for all the people who will invite you to their future weddings, like put your phone down and just enjoy the ceremony. But even during that, right, we're distracted. We're doing other things. But when we hear that music that signals the bride, what happens? Phones down, antennas up, right? Something's about to happen. And typically, right, like, I mean, the, the, the music changes depending on your aesthetics, right, whatever kind of music you like. But inevitably, inevitably this happens. No matter what kind of music, it'll start off kind of slow and anticipatory, and then there'll be this, typically this, this big crescendo in the music, and that, that's the moment. It's the moment when the bride enters. And everybody, I mean everybody, stands up. And they turn around and they behold the glory of this woman, the glory of her man. 
And they watch breathlessly as she slowly and elegantly and beautifully makes her way down the aisle. It's glorious. And it doesn't matter how awesome the rest of your wedding is. It doesn't matter how awesome your reception is. The one thing that sticks in your mind from that night is always that moment. That moment when you first laid eyes on that beautiful, glorious woman. It's the highlight of the whole event. Everything leading up to it is just a building up to that moment, and everything after it is just a coming down from that moment. You know what would not be appropriate in that moment? It's for the groom to steal the show. Right? It would be so awkward. It would be so weird. So uncomfortable. So unnatural. That's what Paul is saying here. He's saying when men seek to glorify themselves, this amounts to a rejection of women as their more glorious counterparts. Don't be that groom. So listen, there's a, a lot of different ways that we could apply this text. There's lots of different sort of conclusions that we could arrive at based on our time and the place that we live in and, and all of that. But listen, the task this morning was very simple for me. It's step one in this process is to get us to see that this text is, in fact, glorious and good for God's people. And so hopefully what we've noticed here is that there are two things at play, right? There's a custom, head coverings, that is local to a time, the early 50s AD, and a place, Corinth, east of here. Checking if you're still awake. That custom is that honored and dignified women cover their heads and accordingly they should cover them in the Sunday gathering. Now, just because there's a custom that may be outdated, right, it's 2018, or contextually inappropriate, we're in Houston, Texas, not Corinth, doesn't mean that we can just disregard and discard this scripture altogether. Why? Underneath, there's a principle that transcends time and place. And what is that principle. It's this principle that men and women and their gender differences were created by God gloriously and they will be redeemed gloriously in the future. And here's what I mean by that. In the kingdom of God, the glory of God is expressed by men and women. So that means that when we arrive in glory, we will not be some androgynous beings. When we receive whatever our glorified body is, it will be very clear that we are male and female because God receives glory when the two of them are joined together in the context of a worship gathering. That means that Romans, I'm sorry, Revelation chapter 5, when we see this multitude worshiping before the throne room of God, it will be comprised of men and women. 
God created men and women before the fall. Our genders are not of sin. The way that we've exercised our gender differences towards one another, now that's a different story. Clearly. But our gender differences are not something that God plans to take away, but rather something that He intends to redeem and glorify all the more. Which is why Paul says, this is what it should look like when you're together, because this is what it's going to look like when you're together forever. And so Paul's point is not that women should be wearing head coverings regardless of the culture in what, where, which they live. Rather, his point is that when preserving the distinction between men and women, cultural expressions are highly, of gender, are highly relevant. And even beyond that, there's a further principle that's ultimately rooted in everything that we just spent six weeks talking about, which is that when we gather together for worship, we should consider one another. We should worship the Lord together in ways that don't distract from the glory of God. Women, you are glorious. Everything about you is glorious. Please cover some of that glory so that we might not be distracted from worshiping Him whose glory we are here to behold. Our glory, male or female, right, should never distract from God's glory in the context of the gathered church. And listen, because we worship a triune God, the church can be united as one even as we celebrate the things that make us different, right? In fact, it's the reciprocal roles of men and women that are built into the gospel itself. Or in other words, Paul invites both men and women to look to Christ as their example. Men look to Christ as their example. He spoke boldly, ministered gently, loved genuinely, labored diligently, led winsomely, a protector, a provider. He stood ready to serve and sacrifice when called upon to submit his own, to submit his own interests to the interests of his bride. Jesus died to see his bride glorified. He laid down his life so that the church, which proceeds from his own body, which is his body, might be beautiful and glorious. Women also look to Christ as their example, right? Though Jesus was glorious, he did not seek to glorify himself. Women, you're glorious, but don't glorify yourself like Jesus. Rather, he humbly submitted himself to the will of his heavenly Father so as to glorify his heavenly Father. He was meek, but his meekness was not misunderstood as weakness. He was powerful precisely because he was humble. He loved and served and nurtured and built up those around him, and therefore he was beautiful and attractive, Isaiah says, despite his outward appearance being that of a man. And so again, Paul wants us to know one very simple thing from this. That is that men and women are to be active, honored, dignified participants in the local church gathering and that their gender differences were created gloriously and will be redeemed gloriously in God's kingdom for God's glory. Brothers and sisters, that means that your gender is a gift to you from God himself. 
And the questions we need to begin asking is, are we exercising that gift? Are we living into that gift? Is the church benefiting from that gift? Let's pray that it would be so. And if you have more questions about this text, join the club. And we can have some conversations. I'm more than open to doing that. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Again, God, we're grateful to be gathered together. Uh, Lord, thank you for your word where there is good news for us, good news of your sacrifice on our behalf. Lord, that you would send your glorious son to be gloriously what we could not be. Lord, that he would be wonderful in all the ways that we were meant to be wonderful, that he would be sinless in all the ways that we were meant to be sinless, that he would be perfect in all the ways that we were meant to be perfect, and yet that he would then experience the curse in order to pay for our lack of glory, in order to pay for our lack of perfection. And so, Lord, we come this morning resting in His saving grace. We come, Lord, submitting ourselves to what He says is good. Because we've tried, quite honestly, we've tried the things that the world says is good, and we've either found them not to be so, or we will find them not to be so shortly. And so, Lord, we confess that we believe, and yet we know, God, that there are areas and places and ways in which we do not believe. And so we ask you, Lord, humbly and graciously, would you help our unbelief? May what you say is good news truly be good news. And may we be a place wherein, Lord, men and women are dignified and empowered and gloriously themselves so that you might be gloriously honored in them. We're not 100% sure what all of that means yet, but Lord, we trust that your spirit will help us discern it. And we ask that he would do it again for your glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.